The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, there's a problem familiar to screenwriters hoping to make a film about a great writer. Often, the writer's life is essentially uninteresting, apart from that magic that happens at the typewriter or with the quill or now with the laptop. Try filming that for two hours and see how many tickets you sell. And so... These writers try voiceovers and dramatizations and other tricks to try to make the act of writing a more or less inert physical activity into something filmically interesting. This isn't the case for all writers. Sometimes writers have lives that make their own works pale in comparison. Our figure today, W. Somerset Mom, known to his friends as Willie, but known to the world as Somerset, a name he hated, lies somewhere on that end of the spectrum. His life was incredible. His output prodigious and legendarily record-breakingly successful. A cartoon in Punch magazine showed William Shakespeare himself chagrined at the London theater scene, four posters for plays, and all of them by Somerset Mom. No one had done that before, not even Oscar Wilde. Mom wrote more than 30 staged plays and 19 novels, on top of countless short stories and sketches that turned into dozens of films and hundreds of radio plays. He dominated the 20th century in a way that few others can match. And now, in the 21st century, almost nothing remains. Four novels are cited, only one of them more or less universally acknowledged as great. He was not a pioneer in literature. His plays are not classics. His writing style was viewed as slapdash or cliched even in his own time. There are short stories there to be mined, but they await their appointment to the canon. There aren't a handful that are firmly in the world of anthologies and syllabi. And yet, the life, the life, the life, the life that he had. Oscar Wilde as a predecessor in more ways than one, both as a literary figure who had himself dominated the theatrical world a few decades before Mom, but also as the example how a gay man, even a highly successful one, can be leveled by the laws designed to punish homosexuality. Wilde was imprisoned. Mom, himself gay, took note. But it came at a cost. Mom tried unsuccessfully to be not gay. Later in life, he said, quote, I tried to persuade myself that I was three quarters normal and that only a quarter of me was queer, whereas really it was the other way around. End quote. In following his life, one sees a handful of constants, writing, being one of the biggest, floating like an island on an ocean of turmoil. Everything else was in flux. Mom was like a piece of dandelion fluff, being blown by breezes this way and that, landing in one place only to be picked up and carried to the next. After a while, you wonder if the fluff has any say at all in where it's going and why, if there's some pattern to it, some design, or if it's merely being pushed around by forces it doesn't fully control. We'll look at the amazing life of Somerset Mom, and then we'll talk to an author Tan Tuan Eng, shortlisted for the Booker Prize, who saw in Mom a fascinating portrait. Not the writer sitting in his chair doing nothing but putting words on a page, although God knows Mom did plenty of that, but someone who had a life worthy of a novel by Ian Fleming. Only deeper than that. Somerset Mom and Tan Tuan Eng, today on The History of Literature. Okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. We'll give Emily Dickinson the day off and go right to Somerset Mom and finish up his life. I told you that there were four novels people read today, and only one of them has a kind of here's his best 
approval, and that's of human bondage. Everything else is kind of up for grabs. And yet, as with any prolific writer, there are treasures to be mined. I've been reading some short stories by D.H. Lawrence, and some of the less famous ones are the most fascinating. Same is true for Balzac. The novels are the novels. They stand on the shelves like like soldiers in formation. But man, some of the short stories show Balzac in a new light. Mom is like that. So much of what he wrote now seems a little dated and a little superficial, but the guy wrote so much for so long, and he brought such a, an earnestness to the task that there's stuff there waiting to be discovered. We'll talk to our guest about that and about why he wrote about Mom in the first place. That, however, will come after two things, mom's biography and, first of all, a listener email. This one comes from Dr. Christine, who was here once before. She's back with an update. Subject, more mother-daughter reading adventures. Now, people, (laughs) before we get to the email, let me comment on this subject line. I don't get to every single email that comes my way. Unfortunately, I just do not. I try, but I just do not have time to to respond to them all. But I can promise you that I will read every single email with a subject line, more mother-daughter reading adventures, exclamation mark. I open it the way a naive optimist tears open an envelope that says, you have won a million dollars. Mother-daughter reading adventures, you are singing my tune. Let's hear about these adventures and see if they are as heartwarming as one might hope. Dear Jack, I wanted to thank you for reading my email on your 500th episode. I was truly honored. My daughter and I finished Paradise Lost and are now finishing up The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. (laughs) Pause there. Whoa. That reminds me that we need to do that Anne Bronte episode that I promised about five years ago. The Tenant of Wildfell Hall by Ecton Bell, A.B. Anne Bronte, and banned by her sister Charlotte for a period of time. That, that wasn't really Anne's nature, Charlotte said, denying its publication incredibly, incredibly. How? I mean, she knew Anne, of course, but Anne wrote the thing. Writers can have a different nature, can't they, from their lives? We need to do an episode on Anne Bronte. Okay, back to the email. So we know these two, these mother and daughter, they have good taste. Milton and Anne Bronte. My goodness, this is some elite level stuff. Okay, back to the email. My daughter lives in another state, and discussing these books is a special way to carve out time. I'm going through the older episodes in random order. Whatever seems interesting at the time is what I listen to. Recently, I listened to your episode on Herman Melville. I told my daughter about the Moby Dick Marathon and that it is on my bucket list. For those, okay, pause here. For those of you wondering about this, we had an episode about Melville where Mike and I talked with author Christina Negron, a.k.a. the classic slacker about her experience on board, oh, what's the ship? It's not the Kushnet, it's not the Pequot, the Charles W. Morgan. That's what it is. You can stay on board that ship for 24 hours as a team of people read Moby Dick aloud. Actually, you can sign up to read a passage aloud yourself. It's for the community, and some people, they they just bring their blankets and whatever else, and they... They uh, tuck themselves into this, on board this ship, and listen to Moby Dick. Can you imagine? We are now in the realm of what's higher than elite level, stratospheric literary air. Back to the email. Well, yesterday was my birthday, and my daughter and her husband came for a visit. She told me two bits of good news. They are moving back to be closer to us. The second bit of good news is that as a birthday gift, she is taking me to the Moby Dick Marathon. We plan to attend the marathon in New Bedford, because although we have visited Mystic several times, she gets motion sickness and sitting on a boat for 24 hours would be a very unpleasant experience. Well, thanks again for your interesting podcast. We plan to keep up our reading, even though she will now only be about 10 minutes away. Yours, Christine. Well, I got ahead of myself. 
a bit. I'm just realizing now because I responded and said, maybe you'll see Christina there because Christina goes every year. But I see now reading more carefully that these two aren't going to the Charles W. Morgan, but to New Bedford, where they also host a 24-hour marathon read of Moby Dick held at the New Bedford Whaling Museum. I'm, I'm guessing some people maybe go to both. But it is also very cool to have it. Even if you're not on board, I can understand with the seasickness that might not be so good. But it, having it in a museum is also very cool. A whaling museum. I've had the good luck to be at a few different museums late night after hours, and they become a completely different type of space. Enchanted. I suspect the New Bedford Whaling Museum will be a good place to hear Melville's words and to spend some time with Ishmael. And of course, as excited as I am for the two of you for this birthday bonanza, I am equally excited to hear that your daughter will be living 10 minutes away with a son now in college, about a thousand miles away. I can't imagine anything better than him moving home, although him moving home plus reading books with me plus giving me a wonderful birthday present, well, that almost seems like more heaven than it is my right to even imagine. Congratulations to you and your daughter. Your story is of a paradise not lost, but found, at least from this parent's point of view. And thank you for the email. Okay, Somerset Mom was born in Paris in 1874 to a prominent family of lawyers. His grandfather had co-founded the Law Society of England and Wales. His father was similarly successful. He was based in Paris handling the legal affairs of the British Embassy. And in fact, Mom was born at the embassy itself, in a maternity ward set up by the ambassador to evade a French law that said that all babies born on French soil would become French citizens and therefore subject to the military draft. Mom was born, therefore, on sovereign English territory there in the embassy, and he was an Englishman, though that kind of yes-but status was very typical for mom's life, as we shall see. Rich, yes, but. Successful, yes, but. A figure of empire, yes, but. Conventional, yes, but. An Englishman, yes, but. And a writer who dug deep into his personal life, yes, but. When mom was eight, his mother died of tuberculosis. That was a wound that never healed. He kept a picture of her at his bedside for the rest of his life. His father died a couple of years later. Mom, then, now an orphan, was sent to live with his uncle in England, and he was sent to English schools. Those schools were rougher and more restrictive than what he was used to in Paris. He found them to be provincial and narrow-minded. He didn't fit in well with the other boys, and he grew increasingly shy and developed a stammer that stayed with him the rest of his life. Two of his older brothers were, were successful. They were lawyers in the family business, but mom wasn't progressing according to plan. He wasn't interested in sports, and he was becoming aware that he was gay, which made him secretive, furtive, he had a lot to hide. His English wasn't great yet. By six, other kids teased him about it. By 16, he left this world in England where he felt like an outsider to study in Germany, where, which he took to better. <laughs> That's the right way to say it. He found more of a home there. He had a sexual affair with an Englishman 10 years older than him, but he, he, and, and he also studied philosophy and literature. Authors like Schopenhauer and Spinoza. His stammer blocked him from a career in the law, and his lack of faith blocked him from a career in the church. Not sure what to do. He tried working as an accountant for a month and hated it, so he quit, and finally he turned to medicine. Secretly, this whole time, he wanted to be a writer. And then, although he was trained as a physician, he, he quit as soon as his literary success enabled him to. But the training stayed with him. You can see it in many of his books and stories. He's about 23 at this point. He published a novel about his experiences as a doctor. He wrote more novels and started writing plays. And by his early 30s, he had become something of a sensation. 
He's traveling all over now to Spain, and then when the war broke out, World War I, there's an ambulance driver in France. He was also visiting young male prostitutes, but mindful of Wilde's example, he proposed marriage unsuccessfully to a woman, though later he got married to a different woman named Siri Welcome. The two had a child together, but it wasn't a happy or successful marriage. Mom was writing plays as well as novels. Now, he, to, in the weeks before the war, he completed his novel of human bondage, which is mostly autobiographical and tells a story about a man afflicted throughout childhood, including with a club foot, which most commentators view as a stand-in for Mom's stammer and or sexual orientation. Of Human Bondage received mixed reviews, but it did have its champions. American novelist Theodore Dreiser said it was a work of genius, comparable to a Beethoven symphony. Mom's fortunes were made, but his life as a traveler was just beginning. He moved to Switzerland, where he worked as an agent for the British Secret Service. His cover was in place. It was as a writer looking for material. At the request of the Secret Service, he went to the South Seas. Next, he, then he traveled to the U.S. and Russia, just ahead of the Bolsheviks, then a sanatorium in Scotland to recover from tuberculosis. He wrote a novel called The Moon and Sixpence, about a stockbroker who abandons his wife and children in favor of a life in Tahiti as a painter. Mom was in a full-blown affair now with his secretary, a man who couldn't live in Britain because he'd been declared an undesirable alien after being arrested on homosexuality charges. So the two of them lived in Hollywood, which Mom hated, although it was lucrative. Hollywood was very good to Mom. Then Mom went to San Francisco and Hawaii and Singapore and the Malay Peninsula, where he and his secretary-slash-companion stayed for six months. This is the period and the place where Tan Tuan Eng, our guest today, will locate Mom. This six-month period in the Malay Peninsula, as he'll tell us about. Tuan was himself born in Penang, where Mom lived, and he mined Mom's story just as Mom had been mining his travels and locales for the stories he wrote. Mom traveled throughout Southeast Asia from there and went to the Far East, and finally, he more or less settled in France and the U.S. For a time, he gave up writing plays in the 1930s, feeling that he had lost touch with the public. But he still wrote his works set mostly in colonial settings, including the West Indies and India. He wrote another successful and still famous book, The Razor's Edge. His companion, his love of his life, Haxton, got sick and died of tuberculosis. Mom was bereft but he found a new secretary-slash-companion. Put that in quotes. Lover. Finally, Mom returned to England, where he was lauded as a national treasure, sort of. He was widely lauded for his readable stories and novels and his ubiquity on the stage and airwaves, but his fame was still occluded by the lack of respectability that his being more or less openly gay brought with it. He settled into a kind of restless routine, living for a few weeks in Austria or Italy or Spain, spending autumns in London, where he stayed in the same suite at the same hotel. He wrote a venomous autobiography that was full of lies, and he lost his grip a bit. His mind started to go. He finally died at the age of 91 in France, and his ashes were interred in Canterbury. Yes, that Canterbury of... Chaucerian fame, and so the roving pilgrim, the teller of tales, had found his final home, or if not a home, at least a final resting spot. One hopes, anyway. As a writer, Mom's known more for being competent than transcendent, workmanlike more than profound. Evelyn Waugh, who admired Mom, said that he had brilliant technical dexterity, but summarized him like this, quote, he is never boring or clumsy. He never gives a false impression. He is never shocking. But this very diplomatic polish makes impossible for him any of those sudden transcendent flashes of passion and beauty, which less competent novelists occasionally attain, end quote. 
Mom himself said merely that he didn't have the imaginative imaginative powers of others, but he was capable of writing about what he saw. He could see more than most people. And I would add that he put himself in the position to do so. But he said, quote, the greatest writers can see through a brick wall. My vision is not so penetrating. End quote. And yet... With a life this rich and an output this widespread, there is much to be gained from a dive into the Somerset Sea. We'll talk to an author, a novelist, who has done just that. Tan Tuan Eng, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Tan Tuan Eng, who was born in Penang, studied law at the University of London, and worked as an attorney for a law firm in Kuala Lumpur. His previous works, The Gift of Rain and The Garden of Evening Mists, turned him into an award-winning and best-selling author. He's here today to discuss his new novel, The House of Doors. Tan Tuan Eng, welcome to the History of Literature. Hello, Jack. It's nice to be on your show. Um, Thank you for having me. So let's start with Penang. I understand that you were born there. Did you grow up there in the 1970s, was it? Well, I was born there in 1972, and I lived in Penang for uh, the first six or seven years of my life mm-hmm. before I moved to Kuala Lumpur, which is the uh, capital city of Kuala Malaysia, because my father worked in a bank, and he was uh, transferred around the country very much, mm. more, so than a, more so than a military family, uh, he used to say. Right, right. <laughs> And what kind of childhood was it? A lot of moves? Were you one of those children who retreated to books and and found that, or did that come later? Well, that's actually very accurate, because we we moved, I think, every two or three years. I found it difficult to make friends in new places, in new schools. I also found that it wasn't worth the effort to really uh, make strong connections with uh, other people. So you're absolutely right that uh, I found most of my friends and my solace in in books i started mm-hmm. reading very young from a very young age nobody forced me to it's just it just happened that my parents had a lot of books lying around and not just children's books either you know it was uh, grown up novels mm. so and they never censored me from reading any of their books it was a very interesting <laughs> childhood i think yeah what kinds of books were you reading Oh, my father was into uh, a lot of nonfiction. He was very much into um, economics and banking mm. stuff, which I couldn't understand. My mother liked more of the uh, the current, the bestsellers of those days. Uh, mm. Arthur Haley, a lot of historical novels, I think. Yeah. She liked that. 
Yes. Yeah. Interesting. And did you know any writers or were were there any authors no. uh, among your no. teachers or anything? Yeah. Okay. So when no. did you <laughs> when did you decide to start writing stories yourself? I probably when I was eleven or twelve, uh, because I was reading a terribly uh, written book. And I, when I finished reading it, I asked myself, hey, why did I waste time reading this? And, and I also told myself, you know, I, I can do this much better. I can write this much better. But I was being, being lazy and being young. I never did anything about it. I was <laughs> talking about it. So the idea lay at the back of my mind for all my adult working life until probably in 2005 when I had sufficient time because I was doing a master's in shipping law. Found that I had time to write, so I decided to. Okay, it's time to start writing a book because you've been telling yourself that you can do it. So let, let's see, let's see whether you can do it or not. Yeah. And did that book become the gift of rain, or or was it, was it that? Did. Oh, it was. Wow. So you could do it. it. Was. <laughs> well, it's it's called the arrogance of youth, I suppose. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, I could do it, but then every publisher in the UK turned it down. Mm. Every one of them. Uh, I, I had no problems finding an agent, uh-huh. but uh, even even my agent uh, was perplexed by why is it that nobody was interested in publishing the book. So we asked for summaries of reasons from all the publishers, and it was very interesting that the majority of the publishers uh, uh, they were vetoed from buying the book by the marketing department. Oh. Oh, yes, the marketing department said, we don't know how to sell this. We don't know what sort of book this is. We don't know how to categorize uh, the gift of rain. So it's it's too difficult to sell it. So we're not interested. Right. Um, it was, yeah, it was quite disheartening you know, to to see that your book was got turned down because uh, some people didn't feel that they wanted to uh, put a bit more effort into trying to market and sell the book. It, it was quite disappointing. Yeah. So the category of literary fiction wasn't that that's too that it needs to be more was, specific than that. It they, they were looking for something what were they looking for exactly I, do you think? I, I I think they were looking for something which uh they could sell to, to readers. They could mm. say, oh this is uh this is in the uh, tradition of say Ian McEwan or Kazuo Ishiguro, but which which it wasn't. The gift of Raid was very much on its own, you know. So, and yeah, it's odd because you you would think that literary the term literary fiction would be wide enough to right. encompass a book like the gift of Raid, but to the marketing departments and the publicity people, they felt it was it would be just too difficult and too foreign, too strange. Mm. Mm-hmm. for, say, the readers of the UK. But everything changed when the Gift of Rain was long-listed for the Booker Prize mm. in 2007. And suddenly my publisher, which who before that had been desperately trying to get the bookshop to stock the book, he was suddenly uh, inundated with phone calls from the bookshop saying, how do, how do, we, how do we get copies of this book? How are you going to supply it? Yeah. And at that point, I guess, are they... Um you know, for the for the future books, then they know how to market it. They say this is by the author who was long listed for the book of Yes. Yeah. That the long listing was, was a godsend in many ways. It suddenly made the bookshops interested in a stocking the books and it made the uh the reviewers in the in the newspapers uh more uh, willing to review the novel. Whereas before they were just completely disinterested in it. Uh, it, so that helped tremendously the long list. Mm. Your agent, it sounds like you you got an agent quickly, and that was in the UK, the agent, I assume. Yes. So so that probably was what led you to that market. But did you consider trying to sell the book in America, or would it have been? Is there a publishing industry in Malaysia that might have picked it up, or were, were those not options for you? Well, it was uh, the publishing industry in Malaysia at the time uh, was very small, and I would say it's still not uh, terribly big mm-hmm. today. So, right from the beginning of when I finished writing the Gift of Rain, I I just knew that to make any impact in the publishing world globally, I would have to send the manuscript to either London or New York. I tried London first, and obviously, if I could not have found a publisher in London. 
I would have uh, started focusing uh, on on uh, the United States of America. But fortunately, a very new publisher, an independent publisher, uh, based in Newcastle, of all places. And he was so new, I was probably the third or fourth title that he was interested in. Mm. You know, he, he hadn't so he he wanted to buy the book and publish it. So I went with him, uh, Myrmidon Books, and that's where you know, the, my writing career really began. I suppose uh, from from that moment on. Mm-hmm. Now I know, obviously, we'd be rewriting history, but here a bit. But my guess is, if you had written this book, The House of Doors, with its connection with Somerset Mom. It might have been uh, the the marketing departments might have had a little more appetite for it, even if that had been your first novel. I don't know. It, it they could have it, but you know, uh, <laughs> I could not have written this book without having written the first two because I learned so much from writing those first two books. I mm. learned how to Im- improve as a writer, how not to overwrite, how to say more with less. Mm. The House of Doors is actually. It's a different style, I would say, from the first book. It's more, it's leaner, it's more pared back. It was intentionally so, because I've changed as a person and as a writer from 15 years ago. So it's obviously, it has to be a different book. So I, I don't know, I don't know, Jack. I don't yeah, know what the publisher right. would say. <laughs> <laughs> so what, let's talk about Somerset Mom and, and about the source of the, or the inspiration for the book. What led you to this story? Well, it started with uh, uh, Somerset Mom's uh, short story, The Letter, which I had read in my early teens. I was very much intrigued by it when I finished it because I then subsequently discovered that he had based it on a real-life murder trial which had taken place in Kuala Lumpur in 1910. Mm. Uh, and I, I, was, I was living in Kuala Lumpur then, and I found it intriguing that here was this murder trial which nobody seemed to know or none of my friends or my parents uh, seemed to know about but somehow Somerset Maugham had uh, heard about it on his travels to Malaya and he had written this this very interesting story a very uh, intriguing story so I wanted to know more about it and I did and it lay at the back of my mind uh, I always knew that someday I would write about how uh, Somerset came to hear about the story and how he wrote this story but that on its own, I knew, wasn't enough for a novel. So that's when I started thinking of other characters as well. Uh, uh, Dr. Sonia Sen, who's a real-life mm. revolutionary from China who wanted to overthrow the, the monarchy of China. And he was in Penang. He, he spent about six to eight months there as well, uh, raising funds for his, his campaign. So I tried to bring all these together uh, through the character of um, Leslie Hamlin. And who was Leslie Hamlin? Well, Leslie Hamlin is actually fictional, but I use her name because Mom's character in the letter was also called is also called Leslie, mm-hmm. and I wanted to show sort of mess with it's sort of a reverse engineering feat that I'm trying to do here, and I wanted to to, to have fun to play with with the very concept of what uh, the idea of creation and creative writing, uh, where where do stories come from, what does a writer do with something that he hears. How does he uh, transform and transmute it into his story eventually? So there's, it gave me a sort of a, almost a sort of a, a joke. It's, uh, I enjoyed using the name Leslie and to have her actually telling this story to Mom and then eventually Mom using her and her name in, in the letter. I, I found that quite uh, interesting to play, play with all of these elements. Right. So what was... Penang like in the 1910s and 20s? Well, Penang is very much as I had described it in the House of Doors. It's very much a colonial society that was obsessed with appearances, with mm. um, with class, with who you knew, who you had tea with, whose parties and dinners you were invited to. So it was all a very much a uh, society based on appearances and um, influence and uh, and class structure as well. So that I found interesting to write about because it's so restrictive and prohibitive. And to, I wanted Leslie to move between uh, in this world and find a way to break through all the, the strictures and the taboos mm. uh, which she struggles against. Yes. Then what was Somerset Mom doing there? He was traveling around the Malay 
archipelago around that time. He's a fascinating figure because he was one of the earliest figures in the uh, 20th century who probably the most widely traveled author and individual mm. of his time. Mm-hmm. Um, he he traveled extensively, uh, ostensibly to collect stories so he could write about them. But I think he was traveling to escape the confinements of British society to start with, because he was never he was always an outsider. Mm-hmm. He was never accepted, uh, and he was also traveling to um, get away from his wife, whom he did not like at all. <laughs> he felt that he he felt that he had been trapped into marrying her. Uh, and he was he was homosexual as well. You know? So mm-hmm. so he was traveling. He was traveling with his secretary Gerald Hackson, who was also his lover. And I think he found more liberation uh, and freedom in places far far away from from England. He could be who he wanted to be. Mm. And yet, you you described Penang at that time as being kind of a. It almost sounds like a a small town where everyone is in everyone else's business and there's a lot of uh, gossip and, and, you know, people are held to a certain standard and so on. So is that, is there part of him that just couldn't give that up that he, he didn't want to go too far from civilization or, or was he conflicted about being there or, or did it really offer him a kind of liberation? I think he was conflicted there. You have to remember that um, to the the public, uh, Somerset Maugham, this famous author, the public thought that he was part of the establishment, mm-hmm. but to the establishment, Somerset Maugham was always the outsider. Mm. So he was in this position where he, he was conflicted, yes. And I think because he was an outsider, he could alight onto any location, any town, any city, um, stay for a short while there, observe what was happening, and, sub- and later on uh, describe what he had seen. Because by that time, he had moved on to another place, and therefore he was not around to suffer the, uh, the backlash of what, what he had written. You know, he, he, was basically, he basically loved to stir things up um, just to see what the reaction would be. Um, he, uh, he wrote a, a lot about adultery and forbidden love and murder, and most people think that's all he wrote about. But to me... I feel that he was actually writing about hypocrisy. Mm. He was pointing out the hypocrisy of society because you have to remember he himself uh, was a victim of society's hypocrisy. So he, he, I think he always felt resentful about that to be a prisoner of hypocrisy. Mm. So most of his stories uh, do highlight the hypocrisy of especially the, the British uh, colonial powers. He, 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 he was very harsh on them. Uh, and, uh, deservedly so, I think. Mm. So it, it would be along the lines of someone who is ostracized morally for his lifestyle or for his, you know, who he loves or something. And he's looking yes. at them and saying, well, look at all the divorces you have, all the affairs yes, you yes, have, yes. all of the corruption that's here. Yes. And, and yes. you know, who are you to judge me? And not only that, look at all the corruption you are perpetuating, and yet you have the temerity to act as moral exemplars to the, the, right. the so-called natives, the, the people that you are ruling. How dare you? The, the sheer hypocrisy of that uh, was what grated him, I think, immensely. Uh, and he was very good. He was very good at pointing out the hypocrisy. I think he was, <laughs> he was very sharp about it right. in his writing. Now, several reviewers I've noticed have observed that the novel that you've written kind of reminds them of Mom's writing, and they they put it in terms of this is a novel that Mom himself might have written. Is that something you see as well? Well, I don't think so. Because initially, when I started writing this book, I had the idea that yes, I would try to replicate Mom's voice mm-hmm. as accurately as possible. 
But I found that I couldn't do it. Either I didn't have the talent to do it, or I felt that my own voice was a more natural expression for the story I'm telling. Right. And I think I think it's the latter because I just felt that I didn't want to pastiche norm. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't want it. I wanted actually to write my own novel, but uh, but parts of it being seen through mom's eyes so I, in the end i changed all the, the early chapters i had written in mom's voice I, I i got rid of them and started afresh and just wrote as myself mm. and i i was much more happier with the result than if i had uh, kept mom's art, artificial voice it, it felt more sincere and, and authentic to me to use my own voice mm-hmm. rather than to rather than to try and and replicate mom's uh voice so perhaps the reviewers are actually seeing the not the actual voice but more because I'm trying to get I was trying to get into mom's uh, being I was trying yeah. to look at the world through his eyes so perhaps that's what the the reviewers were sensing mm-hmm. you know, rather than just the the style of of the of the writing itself Right, kind of a worldview, or or thematically, yes. maybe it has some some resonances yes. and the things that it takes on. And also, I whenever I could, I would uh, pepper those chapters with a few of a sprinkling of mom's actual sentences from his short stories, mm. right. just just to 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 create a sort of resonance with those who had read those stories. They would suddenly realize, but you know, but I feel that this this particular description seems familiar. And um, perhaps they might remember where they had read it, read that from, or perhaps they might not remember. But it still would ring some bells uh, inside them. So I did put a few of Mom's favorite words in there, yeah, uh, favorite expressions, uh, just just to have that sort of uh, resonance for the right. reader. Right. And because that's probably pretty accurate to how mom himself would be thinking, right? He would have a lot of these yes. phrases running through his mind as he's, yes. Yes. Uh, I mean, he wrote a lot. And yes. did you just read his fiction or does he have diaries or letters that you could draw? Oh, upon? a lot. Yeah. Uh, I read almost everything I could, uh, including his, his nonfiction uh, uh, writings. And I actually found that the nonfiction uh, works were extremely helpful hmm. in um Revealing his opinions, uh, his his tastes, and uh, his uh, interests in the world. At, you know, there's a book called The Summing Up, which was probably one of the last few nonfiction books he wrote. Yeah. And inside it, I found a wealth of advice for would-be writers. Extremely good advice. Mm. Um, very sharp and blunt advice. And I used those words, those F2 and transforming into his opinions of what being a writer meant, his frustrations with being a writer. So I used those, I found those, there, and then I, I tried to show it in the House of Doors, what, how he viewed the uh, the writing profession and how it treated him. So there's at, at its heart, the House of Doors is really about uh, the writer's craft as well and uh, what a writer has to do to obtain stories and, and to, to write about them. Mm. And he, at that point in his life, he was kind of struggling, right? He was looking for a subject for his next book, for example. He, he was. I'd also, uh, he, he had lost all his money in, in an unwise investment in New York, in, in stocks and shares. Hmm. So he was quite desperate to, to recover, to recoup his losses. Uh, because for some extent, more money was an extremely important factor in his life. Uh, he, even, he even wrote in one of his nonfiction uh, essays that, Money is the sixth sense, uh, without which you can't make any use of the other five senses. Mm, right. And I felt that he wrote a lot of his works for money because uh, you know, he he didn't have he came from a very humble background, and he wanted money not to give him happiness but to give him options, yeah. options to travel, to escape, to go far, far away, and, and be himself. So money was important to him because of those reasons rather than just the simplistic view that, oh, money buys happiness. Uh, he wanted money to give him freedom. And right. that's why he, I think, yes, a lot of the times he really wrote for, for money. You know, he, he dashed out plays very quickly. 
and he knew what the market wanted. He, he was always attuned to what the audiences were looking for. He was always attuned to how what made a play or a novel successful. So he was very canny in, in that sense. And he was probably one of the earliest writers of the 20th century who was aware, I think, of all this, this aspect of writing, that it is, in some ways, a business. Hmm. I'm thinking of a, a millionaire that I talked to once who said, you know, I know everybody thinks I have all this economic security and everything, but to, to be really free, I would have to be a billionaire. Uh, <laughs> was mom, did he ever find that sense of satisfaction with the amount of money he had and feel like he was free or was he always chasing it? I think he was always insecure about losing it because mm. he, he, he managed to regain a lot of his fortune. But I think that because he had lost it once before, he was very aware of how precarious one's position in life is. Mm -hmm. uh, a simple mistake would see him out on the streets again. So that's one of the reasons I think uh, he had this reputation for being a miser, uh, for being very, very careful with his, his money, for hoarding a lot of things, um, because he had been through very tough times, and he, 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 didn't really, he really did not want to go through all that again. Mm. Did you feel like after you finished the novel and, and since you've now been uh, living with this for a while, uh, do you feel like you've had enough of mom or do you feel like he's still someone who draws your interest and kind of fascinates you as a character? I think he, he still fascinates me and I really would like to read more of his novels mm -hmm. because I, when, when I was researching him, uh, I struggled through some of his novels because in the end, I felt that he was a better short story writer than a novelist. Mm -hmm. I think his short stories will stand the test of time, but uh, a number of his novels, I'm, I'm quite doubtful about that. So I would like to really go back to the uh, less popular novels and, and just to, to, to read them and to see what made him tick, what drove him to produce those novels. There's an interesting story I want to tell you. Uh, about three weeks ago, I received a lovely email. And it was from um, Somerset Mom's great-granddaughter, who was named Siri after, her, after Mom's wife, mm. her great-grandmother. And she wrote that email on behalf of her mother, Camilla, who's mom's granddaughter. Mm -hmm. And they were very complimentary about uh, my portrayal of Somerset Mom uh, because they said that it really brought back to them how what a doting grandfather he was to, to his grandchildren, uh, despite the public's perception of him as a grouchy, sullen, difficult man. He was actually, behind all that, he was actually a warm and loving uh, grandparent. Mm. It, was a very, it, was very extreme, it was an extremely moving and touching uh, email to receive. And yeah. I, yeah, it was. It came unexpectedly. And uh, I also felt that in some ways, Somerset Mom had reached out from, uh, from the past yeah. to, to give me a, a thumbs up. <laughs> right. Uh, it was, it was a wonderful email to receive, I, I must say. Right. So if someone is coming to your book and they want to read some mom, would you recommend that yeah. short story that you had based? The letter, yes. Yeah. So it's called The Letter? The Letter, yes. Okay. So they would read that and then read The House of Doors or read The House of Doors and then read The Letter? I, I really don't know. You know I've, I've, <laughs> uh, I've been told uh, the, the pros and cons of both uh, approaches. So yeah. I really can't say. My view is that whichever you read first, you should read The House of Doors at least twice. Right. Yeah, once before you've read the letter and after you've read the letter to go back to The House of Doors again because uh, the letter and The House of Doors, I've created The House of Doors in such a way that The uh, House of Doors is like a, a mirror and a reflecting letter, which I see also as a mirror. So the slightest change in the angle of how you read the house of doors would reflect back onto the letter and change what you uh, understood about the letter and back and forth you know vice versa back and forth back and forth all the time it's constantly changing your understanding of both works well at least that's what i hope to achieve with house of doors 
Right. Okay. So let's do this. We'll say uh, yes. people should read the hardback of the House of Doors, oh, then cool. read the letter, then read the paperback of the House of Doors. Yes. Yeah. So we just yes. doubled your sales. We're oh yes. We're, uh, yeah. Those marketing people they had no idea what they were tapping into uh, when they were turning you yeah. down. <laughs> well, and, and, and Somerset Mom's estate should be giving me a, a yeah. sum of the royalties. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. The book is called The House of Doors. Tan Tuan Eng, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you, Jax. Pleasure talking to you. And that is going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Tan Tuan Eng for joining me. Please do check out his books. You can find them at bookstores everywhere. And my thanks to Christine, the listener. Good luck on your mother-daughter literary adventures and thanks to you my friends for joining me today please do subscribe to this podcast and consider signing up for our patreon account at patreon.com literature we'll be back next time with some black nature writing and next week we really embrace halloween with a trip to tarrytown new york that episode might come in two parts then we have homer and one of the most passionate fans of literature you will ever encounter I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.